You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients, Oh My. I'm Joe Records. And I'm Pyle Nanavetti. And today we're talking to two of our colleagues, Troy Barsky and Roma Sharma, about the first year of the implementation of the 2020 rulemakings associated with the two major fraud and abuse statutes, the Stark Law and the Anti-Kickback Statute. During today's episode, we are going to provide a recap of the rules, as well as some of the challenges, the practical challenges that we have observed and run into in our experience advising healthcare companies um, on these new rules. Let's get started by asking Roma, could you give us some background on the rules and, and kind of explain what the Stark Law and the Anti-Kickback Statute are um, and, and why they were changed? Sure, happy to. Thanks, Pyle. Thanks, Joe. So the Stark Law and the Anti-Kickback Statute are similar, but they have some important differences. Both are federal laws that prohibit certain types of financial relationships between parties within healthcare. The policy goal behind these laws is to prevent the creation of financial incentives for doctors that might lead to overutilization of government reimbursed healthcare services, uh, which is bad for patients and bad for the government fisc and the taxpayer's dollar. The Stark Law says that a physician who has a financial relationship with an entity cannot refer patients to that entity for services reimbursed by Medicare unless an exception applies. In other words, anytime money changes hands between a physician and another entity, and the physician refers Medicare patients to that entity, the entity needs to make sure that one of the many Stark exceptions applies. The anti-kickback statute is in some ways even more broad. It's similar to the Stark Law, but the anti-kickback statute, um, the federal law, it applies to any individual, not just physicians, who knowingly offer or receive any remuneration in return for furnishing healthcare services reimbursed by a federal healthcare program. So it's broader than the Stark Law since it applies to all individuals and not just physicians though it is more narrow than the Stark Law because in um, one sense it has a scienter element um, or a knowledge requirement. So a person must knowingly offer or receive remuneration. Got it. So why did CMS and the OIG change the regulations um, implementing these statutes? Well, the reason for this overhaul, at least in large part, was to modernize the regulations that govern the Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute which were originally designed in a fee-for-service payment world. However, in the last several years, the healthcare industry has been moving towards value-based care, and the Stark and kickback regulations hadn't kept up and were actually hindering the movement towards value-based care. And just as background, fee-for-service literally means a payment system where insurers pay providers for each service rendered to patients. Whereas in a value-based care payment system, providers are paid not for each service, but based on other metrics like quality of care or improved healthcare outcomes of patients. Can we get a little bit granular and start to talk about some of the, the actual changes that were in the regulations in order to move healthcare systems toward more of a, a value-based approach? Absolutely. Um, so as I mentioned, the Stark and Kickback regulations, they were designed in a fee-for-service payment world, um, but a lot of those regulations were preventing entities from moving towards value-based care. So a lot of the changes that took place in the December 2020 rulemaking um, that made changes to the regulations were changes designed to help entities move towards value-based care and value-based care payments. So on the Stark side, the big changes to the Stark law regulations relate primarily to clarification of some key definitions and to three new value-based care exceptions. 
First, CMS finalized important clarifying language changes to foundational definitions that are critical to the interpretation and operation of nearly all historical exceptions to the Stark Law. The phrases commercial reasonableness, volume and value of referrals, and fair market value were clarified. The revisions generally provide a more objective standard for these definitions that had been muddied in the face of confusing court decisions that seemed at odds with CMS guidance. Not that the definitions are necessarily crystal clear now, but CMS provided some clarification on issues that had been percolating in the industry. Secondly, CMS created three new monumental value-based care exceptions and a number of new supporting regulatory definitions to protect value-based arrangements. While front abuse waivers created since the passage of the Affordable Care Act protect value-based arrangements in the Medicare Shared Savings Program and other CMMI models, value-based arrangements that were outside of those models had not been afforded the same protections. These three new value-based care exceptions allow more types of value-based arrangements to be created. The three new value-based care exceptions are the full financial risk exception, the meaningful downside financial risk exception, and the value-based arrangements exception. In order to be protected by the three new value-based exceptions, physicians and designated health service entities need to be participants in a value-based enterprise or a VBE, which means that the physicians and entities must collaborate to achieve at least one value-based purpose outlined in the regulations. Uh, I won't list all of them here, but a couple examples are that the parties need to coordinate and manage the care of a target patient population, um, or appropriately reduce the cost to growth in expenditures of payers without reducing the quality of care for a target patient population, just to give you an idea uh, of what it means to be in a value-based enterprise. All right, and how about changes to the regulations under the anti-kickback statute? Did the OIG make similar changes there? The OIG did make similar changes there. Um, so when the Stark regulations were changed, OIG issued companion changes to the anti-kickback statute regulations at the same time. OIG issued seven new safe harbors and modified four existing safe harbors. Like under the Stark law regulatory changes, the AKS regulatory changes were designed to, in the words of the OIG, improve potential barriers to more effective coordination and management of patient care and delivery of value-based care. OIG made a number of important changes to various safe harbors, uh, which we detail in a blog post on our website if you're interested um, in more detail on that. On the value-based arrangements front, OIG finalized three new safe harbors that mirror those in the Stark regulations. The value-based arrangements with full financial risk safe harbor, value-based arrangements with substantial downside financial risk safe harbor, and the care coordination arrangements to improve quality health outcomes and efficiency safe harbor. OIG also adopted the VBE definition under the Stark Law. So VBE arrangements under the, the kickback statute are eligible for safe harbor protection under these three new safe harbors. Troy, we're, we're a little over a year out from, from when the new regulations were published. Um, how, how has the first year gone so far for, for clients, for companies that are trying to enter into um, value-based arrangements? Uh, thanks for the question, Joe, uh, and, and thanks for inviting me today. Um, I, I would put uh, entities into three buckets with regard to the new uh, exceptions and safe harbors that Roma explained. 
Um, we have some clients that are jumping in with both feet uh, that are uh, designing new models of care, uh, fully taking advantage of these new uh, exceptions and safe harbors. Uh, and we'll get into more detail as to why it's really challenging uh, for them, but they realize the promise of these new uh, protections and they are fully embracing them. Um, on the other end of the spectrum are those who might be aware of the changes um, uh, in, in a general sense, uh, are excited that they can now do quote-unquote value-based activities, but really have no idea how to effectuate uh, or simply just don't have the resources uh, to effectuate changes um, to take advantage of, of these, you know, as Rome explained, very complicated uh, exception, exceptions and safe harbors. And then you have those in the middle um, that understand at a base level, um, but because of the complexity, because of the potential risk and uncertainty still uh, with uh, uh, these, you know, essentially untested safe harbors, um, there are those that are sort of waiting uh, on the sidelines for those pioneers to move forward, uh, maybe sort of set industry standard and are, are going to come later after uh, those initial or early adopters have uh, fully embraced and, and used these safe harbors. For those early adopters, I think we're, we're seeing a few different uh, uh, ways that, that our clients uh, and others in the industry are, are adopting these uh, new, new safe harbors. Uh, for example, we're seeing uh, technology companies, um, uh, what I call sort of population management companies that are engaging with all sorts of entities uh, to manage uh, patient populations. Um, and for example, uh, maybe they are coordinating care between different provider types um, where the coordination of that care in exchange for a fee uh, could be or could constitute a uh, kickback. Um, and the protection of these new safe harbors um, is allowing them to operate in a much safer way than they could previously. Um, the other area that we see is uh, the use of financial incentives to change physician behavior uh, or change provider behavior. Um, again, making payments, for example, from a hospital to a physician um, to induce certain behavior could be a stark violation or could be a kickback violation. But if, if you're engaging in that behavior, uh, uh, furthering a value-based purpose, uh, as that uh, is defined under these new regulations, um, then that uh, can also, uh, those activities can also enjoy significant protection. So how do these new safe harbors and exceptions impact the existing Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, or CMMI models, like ACO programs or bundled payment arrangements that Roma mentioned, where historically CMS and OIG have provided very broad waiver protections? Uh, with the passage of these or, or enactment of these regulations, the government said, we're not going to get, give you any further waivers um, if you want to uh, engage in value-based arrangements in these models in the future, um, you uh, uh, are going to have to use the safe harbors. We're not going to give you new waiver protection. But as you know, there are a number of programs like the Medicare Shared Savings Program or other programs um, that uh, have really broad uh, waiver protection. And, and in our experience, the uh, entities who are in those programs 
are not even really bothering with the new uh, exceptions and safe harbors because they have much easier to comply with uh, waivers that they use to operate within those programs. So really where the, the promise of these new uh, exceptions and safe harbors come into play is really outside of uh, the uh, CMS, sort of the existing models, um, or maybe the new models um, uh, that are going to come in the future. So where would you say the benefits of these new exceptions and safe harbors are being seen? I think the real benefit uh, sort of divided into two categories. One um, is sort of uh, health plan uh, arrangements or arrangements that uh, start from like a Medicare Advantage plan and and then provide for value-based arrangements downstream. Historically, when we've evaluated these kinds of arrangements, we've relied upon uh, the uh, uh, a very broad managed care uh, safe harbor, uh, the risk-based uh, uh, stark exceptions um, to, to really protect a lot of those arrangements. Where there's been, I think, a little more challenge is where we don't only have uh, Medicare Advantage uh, plans, but also uh, commercial plans that also have uh, sort of similar type incentive programs uh, with downstream providers. While, while there is a sort of broader uh, uh, existing safe harbor for risk-based uh, arrangements um, in the commercial market, um, that safe harbor has been historically really difficult to comply with. So now what the new safe harbors uh, really allow for is what, what I like to refer uh, and others in the industry is a, a payer agnostic approach that regardless of what payer you have upstream, you can use one safe harbor to protect your value-based arrangements um, and you don't need to determine which payer is upstream in order to determine what kind of protection you're going to receive. Um, but the real benefit, that, and I think the real uh, advance that we've seen is where there's no payer in the picture where you have providers coordinating with each other. As I mentioned, maybe you have a technology company in the mix as well, coordinating care. You have a hospital, you have physicians, you have other entities that are all providing uh, uh, incentive-based uh, payments as part of a network. Um, within those kinds of arrangements where you didn't have an upstream payer, like paying on a capitated basis, there was uh, significant questions under those arrangements, whether the Stark Law or whether the kickback statute would prevent those types of arrangements. And, and now under these new safe harbors, um, with uh, ensuring that we actually comply with all of the, the requirements that Roma had laid out, um, but assuming that you can comply, and, and, and our clients are, are proving that you can, um, you can engage in value-based arrangements between providers in a way that you could not do a few years ago. So I think from our perspective, that's been where we've seen the most advance is provider-to-provider -provider relationship uh, arrangements um, mixed in with technology companies. I'm hoping we see more of that in the years ahead. So what are some outstanding questions that regulated entities still have about the regulations? So you mentioned, you know, the three buckets of folks in terms of how ready they are to explore and try to implement these new safe harbors, but there's also, it seems like, certain reluctance um, for trying out untested safe harbors, for example. So. Are there any particular outstanding questions or gaps that folks still need the agencies to fill in before 
um, there's more comfort in moving forward under the new regs? Uh, yes, I, I think there are many, uh, um, and that I think are preventing, you know, those last two buckets, those that that are just uh, uh, sort of glancing at the new uh, uh, regulations, um, or have some interest but have reluctance to to jump in um, because of barriers. So, so let's talk about a few of them. Um, the first uh, is that this is a complicated test. Uh, these safe harbors, these exceptions are complicated. Uh, as Roma laid out, they're, they're really a, a, a two-part test. The first part is, is to evaluate these interrelated definitions. There's a value-based enterprise uh, that you need to identify. You need to identify what value-based activities you're trying to protect between the different parties. All of those activities need to be working towards a value-based purpose that has another definition. And all of those entities uh, and all of those uh, uh, requirements, um, even before you get to the safe harbors themselves, um, is challenging. You know, you need to decide at a definitional level, do we fit within this new paradigm? And once you decide that yes, we do, or yes, we can fit ourselves within this new paradigm, then you get to the second part of the test, which is, do you meet the terms of the safe harbor or the of the exception? Um, the way the the safe harbors work, uh, and the exceptions are the same, um, is that the more financial risk you're willing to take, uh, the less regulatory requirements are put in place. So, for example, if you are taking no financial risk, there are many, many uh, regulatory requirements. Um, if you're taking full financial risk, uh, meaning like you're just p being paid one lump sum to treat a patient population, um, there are less regulatory requirements. Being willing to accept financial risk, a full financial risk is not a place where many providers currently are. Um, they don't have the resources to accept that full financial risk. And so even meeting the terms of these really complicated safe harbors is challenging. And you know, beyond that, they require a lot of resources. You know, the, the entities that we find that are taking advantage of the new safe harbors have uh, very robust uh, you know, internal uh, teams, uh, compliance teams, uh, uh, contract monitoring teams, and business teams that really uh, think through at a granular level how to implement these new safe harbors. And how would you advise companies to do that, to really think through on a granular level how to implement these new safe harbors? You know, what we do with our clients is essentially to provide a checklist to say for their business teams to say, here are all of the things that you need to do in order to comply with these safe harbors. If you can do all of these things and comply with all of these steps, and not only at the outset of the contract, but throughout the term of the contract, then you could be protected. And, and you really need to have the resources to go through that exercise. Um, uh, and it's not simply just drafting a contract, it's actually implementing the internal processes in order to meet the contractual terms. Not everyone can do that. Uh, and not everyone has the ability to uh, invest those resources right now. So uh, while I think there's a lot of promise, um, it's a lot harder. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, there are these 
uh, fraud and abuse waivers in the CMS programs, um, those waivers are, are relatively easy to meet. You have to pass a board resolution. You need to have sort of internal processes to make sure that you're complying with the, the program terms, but they're not nearly as, as complex as these uh, uh, safe harbor uh, requirements. Um, and, and it's expensive, uh, um, not only to enter into the contract, but one thing we see in a number of the safe harbor and, and uh, exception uh, requirements is this what I call sort of ongoing monitoring requirement, which is, as I mentioned a moment ago, you need to comply with a value-based uh, purpose, uh, uh, and uh, and you need to work towards uh, a specific goal to continue to enjoy safe harbor protection, I should say. And um, if you find after a period of time, um, you're monitoring, uh, you're required to monitor once a year, if you're not actually achieving uh, the goals that you set out to, um, you need to tear down the arrangement or you need to change the arrangement. So there's this ongoing monitoring requirement um, and then also, if even if you've invested a lot of money in a particular value-based arrangement and it doesn't work out, the safe harbor says that you need to tear it down or fix it um, or you no longer have protection. Well, there's a lot of risk uh, in engaging in that kind of arrangement um, if after a period of time you relied upon fraud and abuse protection and then you no longer have it because you don't achieve your goals. Uh, for a lot of entities, they're not willing to uh, uh, take on that risk. Um, and, and finally, I think the, the last point I'd make is, you know, these provisions are untested. Uh, you know, as uh, Roma mentioned, there are many definitions under the Stark Law, uh, fair market value, concept of payment of volume and value of referrals, commercial reasonableness. Uh, while the new uh, regulations provided better definitions of these terms, there are these new terms under the Stark Law and, and the anti-kickback safe harbors that are new, untested. There's no court decisions on them. So there's a level of risk that even if the OIG says that a particular term means something in their preamble discussion, as we know in fraud and abuse enforcement, the courts often have other ideas. So you're also relying upon new terms, new terminology, a, a whole new paradigm of fraud and abuse enforcement um, that really hasn't been tested by courts. Um, and you could engage in a certain arrangement thinking that you're protected, and then you could have a court a few years from now come up with a completely different position, or maybe Department of Justice has a completely different interpretation than what CMS has of their uh, particular uh, definitions. And, and so there's that level uh, sort of enforcement risk that we've seen with the Stark Law and the kickback statute when you have sort of untested uh, regulatory environment. To close things up, where do we see the, the high activity areas going forward for the, the agencies here? What are the enforcement priorities and, and what are the next kind of regulatory priorities under the, the Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute? Sure. Uh, I could think of two uh, uh, in particular, maybe more, but one uh, that I think we haven't mentioned yet is that there was a deliberate decision uh, by the OIG to exclude uh, pharmaceutical uh, manufacturers um, and also to uh, exclude uh, device manufacturers unless they're 
predominantly a technology company, um, just exclude them from protection uh, under the safe harbor, saying that while they understood that some of these companies want to engage in value-based arrangements because of their long history of uh, uh, of engaging in, in uh, fraudulent activity and False Claims Act enforcement against some of these companies, that the OIG thought that the risk was too high uh, to uh, afford them uh, safe harbor protection. Um, so we, so so essentially, these companies um, have been left on the outside looking in. And we see we've seen some activity on Capitol Hill exploring whether uh, there should be sort of statutory uh, exception for value-based arrangements with manufacturers. Um, but at least today, uh, the OIG has come down on, on on deciding that those entities would be excluded. Um, the other uh, area uh, that I'll mention is that there's inconsistencies uh, between the uh, Stark. Uh, regulations and the anti-kickback statute. You know, as Roma said, these are two similar laws, but they're different. You know, the the kickback statute is criminal. The Stark law is a civil statute, um, and um, the uh, OIG and CMS has said, look, the we've tried to align the safe harbors as and exceptions as much as we can, but because of the different nature of both of our our underlying laws, we could not have. Uh, exceptions uh, parallel uh, to the safe harbors. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, one um, is that with the no-risk safe harbor, essentially if you want to engage in a value-based arrangement um, uh, under uh, uh, Stark or kickback, but you don't want to accept any risk, um, the OIG has said um, that with regard to the party that's accepting the in-kind benefit, like let's say you have a care coordination tool that's given from a hospital to a physician. Um, under Stark, um, the physician does not need to contribute uh, any money uh, towards the cost of that uh, care coordination tool. Uh, but under the OIG Safe Harbor, uh, the OIG has said that there needs to be a 15% contribution by the recipient. So if you want safe harbor and exception protection, you know, Stark and kickback protection, you're going to ignore the more permissive Stark exception and say, well, I need to uh, uh, go with the more restrictive uh, anti-kickback uh, uh, safe harbor uh, requirement. And so, so it, those types of inconsistencies, um, while understandable uh, from both the agencies, I think it just makes for a really confusing uh, uh, sort of compliance landscape where a uh, entity is trying to figure out what they need to do. Um, one last example um, is that in addition to excluding manufacturers, the OIG also excluded other entities. Uh, for example, they excluded laboratories from, from protection where CMS did not exclude laboratories. Um, what we've seen in value-based arrangements, sort of really interesting development in the world of value-based care, um, Hospital-based networks um, uh, essentially, uh, not surprisingly, derive their revenue from uh, uh, you know, hospital services. Um, but we also see in the marketplace uh, physician-driven networks um, that don't necessarily partner with hospitals, but partner with other ancillary providers, laboratories, imaging centers, um, other types of uh, uh, providers in the community that band together um, to provide coordinated care for patients. Well, the OIG has said that 
the, that laboratories are excluded uh, from protection under their safe harbors. But we've seen a number of physicians actually uh, really engage in some novel activities with laboratory uh, companies to uh, provide value-based care for, for their population. So really what this means is that the OIG has made a decision, um, likely inadvertently, that they're favoring uh, uh, hospital-based networks compared to physician-based networks, um, and, and, you know, that there's really a disparity uh, where the physician-based networks are at a slight disadvantage uh, compared to um, uh, the hospital-based networks. And so I think it's issues like that, that as we work with these safe harbors and exceptions a bit more, see the disparities that are created by the differences in the two regulations that I hope that others in the industry will have conversations with the government over the next few years and, and fix uh, some of these areas that, that I think sort of create disparities and disadvantages and sort of picks winners and losers. Um, but, but again, overall, um, full net positive uh, with regard to all of these changes. Um, and I still think that in the years ahead, we will see uh, much more adoption uh, across the healthcare industry as, as the full promise of these exceptions and safe harbors uh, take hold. Well, that's a great place to close out the episode. So with that, I'd like to thank Troy and Roma for joining us on this episode of Payers, Providers, and Patients, Oh My. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. Mm-hmm.